All right, well, let's take our Bibles and go to Acts chapter 21. For this week, we are back in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 21. And I want to begin by just reading verses 15 and 16. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Now let's pause right there and remember that Paul has been making his way to Jerusalem. Despite repeated warnings of the dangers there that await him, imprisonment, suffering, that Paul is determined to get to the city of Jerusalem. He is compelled or constrained the, the book of Acts says, by the Holy Spirit to go there. He's even been warned by prophets. New Testament prophets have come and said, Agabus, the prophet has said, the man who wears this belt, this sash, is going to be bound like this and is going to uh, suffer at the hands of the Jews in Jerusalem. Even Luke and Timothy and his other companions, which was a sizable group of men traveling with Paul, have tried to persuade Paul to not go to Jerusalem, to stay away because of the dangers. Paul, in the face of all of that, though, is not dissuaded. He is bound and determined to go to Jerusalem. So they now arrive in Jerusalem from Caesarea, where they had been staying with Philip the evangelist, and we're going to cover a large portion of text today, okay? We're going to go all the way through the end of chapter 23. It covers Paul's entire time and experience in the city of Jerusalem. And I believe that it's intended to be read and understood as one unit, one part of the story. So I'm going to break it down into five scenes. And what Luke does with these five scenes is he explains first how the sovereign Jesus, the risen Lord, charts the path for his gospel and directs all of the affairs and powers on earth for his own ends. He uses the violence and the ignorance and the apathy of both the Jewish and the Roman rulers to grow his church, to accomplish salvation in the world. Second, Luke demonstrates how the gospel moves from one world culture into the next. Now, we've seen this on a kind of a, a micro level from city to city. Where does Paul always start his ministry when he goes into a new city? In the synagogue. He goes into the synagogue and he preaches to the Jews and he explains to the Jews the gospel that Jesus is their Christ, their Messiah. It is that he is the fulfillment of all of the promises in the Old Testament. And it's then when the, uh, the Jews will, uh, or a portion of them, many will turn and will believe and, and uh, repent of sins. But those who then get angry and, and reject the gospel and drive Paul out, Paul then will turn to whom? The Gentiles. So we've seen it on a small level. This now is kind of the apex or the fulfillment on a macro level of that process. The gospel is now leaving Jerusalem and going where? To Rome. 
That is Paul's ultimate destiny. That's where he wants to go, is to Rome. And that's where the Lord Jesus is taking him. They have been this smaller picture of of what now is a seismic shift of the gospel to all nations and all peoples as the fulfillment of the promises and the plans of God. And these events in Jerusalem then, they close Paul's missionary journeys and they close his ministry in Jerusalem and Jerusalem is no longer part of the Acts record. The focus is entirely on getting to Rome and the Gentile world. Thirdly, Luke explains with these five scenes why the Apostle Paul is uniquely qualified to fully bridge the gap between these two worlds, the Jewish world and culture and the Roman world and culture. And what it says to us is this. The risen Lord is behind the gospel and he is with his people who are called to bear that gospel into the world. He has not abandoned us. He will not abandon us, nor will he forsake his purposes in the world. And it is just as true today as it was on the day that Paul arrived in Jerusalem. And when we hold steadfast to our mission, faithful to the gospel, the Lord Jesus will advance the gospel in the world. It is not a question of whether or not he will do that. Now, it might, we might not see how he is doing it. We might not be able to perceive and comprehend how God is actually accomplishing it. And in fact, as these scenes unfold, you will have to imagine that Paul didn't even, Paul did not expect the path that is laid out before him here. We may not be able to see it, but it is never a question of if. So let's look then at how Jesus advances his gospel through his messenger. First of all, Jesus advances the gospel through Paul's sacrifice, his sacrifice. Look at verse 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went with us to James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. And they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Uh, Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification will be fulfilled 
and the offering presented for each one of them. So Paul in his report then, and it says he was one by one. So Paul is going city by city. And then we went to uh, Ephesus, and then we went to back to Corinth, and then we went to, and he's telling them all that God has done. Paul and this report are warmly welcomed. And his mission and the gospel, the spread of the gospel is celebrated by James and all the leadership in Jerusalem. But the Jerusalem leaders also point out that many Jews in Jerusalem have also come to the faith. The gospel has continued to grow among the Jews there in Jerusalem, and they remain zealous for the law. And what he means is this, is that they have accepted Jesus as their Messiah and the way of salvation. They don't look at the Mosaic law as the, as the means of salvation, of being reconciled to God. They see Jesus as the fulfillment of it, but they still feel compelled to live as Jews according to the law. And so now all of the law that has been fulfilled in Jesus has fulfilled meaning for them, but they continue to live under it, circumcising their children, uh, attending the feasts, celebrating Passover, celebrating Pentecost, all of these kinds of things, probably avoiding uh, pork, diet, all of the unclean foods. They are, they are still living in that sense under the law. They're zealous for the law. But they're zealous for the law because it's the law of their God who has provided salvation in Jesus. And so the, uh, they are living zealous for the law, retaining their Judaism. The problem is that they have heard certain things about Paul's teaching. They have heard that what Paul is doing is running around and saying to Jews, you need to come to Jesus. You need to repent of your sins. He is your Messiah. He's the fulfillment of God's promises. And in doing that, you need to leave the law. You need to trash the law of Moses and forget it. And you need to start eating pork and you need to stop circumcising your kids and you need to stop, and you need to stop celebrating Passover and all of these things. That's what they have heard about Paul. And so they see Paul as creating division. There is mistrust because of these reports. Now, we know this is a misunderstanding. Paul, in some way or another, has been misrepresented to them. Because if you read Paul's letters, what Paul preached was a message of conscience. It was not that Jews needed to forsake living under the law. In fact, he's very clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Romans chapter 14, that those with weak consciences and those with clear consciences about all kinds of different things need to love one another within the church and be patient with one another and not look down or condemn on the one hand and not try to constrain the other group to try to live under my convictions that I can't eat certain foods or go certain places or whatever it is. And he says, both of those sides within the church need to love each other and recognize the freedom of conscience. And that's what Paul is exercising here. Paul does not feel compelled to have to live under the law, but he is willing to. And the Jerusalem leadership understands that Paul has been misunderstood, that he has been misrepresented, which is why they ask Paul to do this thing to participate in the completion of this vow with these other men. Now, 
So many believe this is a Nazarite vow. Nazarite vow was a, a, a vow from uh, found in the law. You couldn't cut your hair, you couldn't touch a dead body, you couldn't be anywhere near Gentiles. Uh, all these kinds of um, all these kinds of rules you had to keep when under this vow. And so, and that may be this may be a Nazarite vow. There were different types of Nazarite vows. It's possible. The details are not really all that important, though. I don't think Luke would have given them to us if they were. But they are obviously asking Paul to do something publicly Jewish and something generous to provide the means for these men to be able to offer these sacrifices as the closing ceremony to this vow that they've taken and to participate in it with them. And they're asking him to do this to help clear up the misunderstanding and to bring harmony within the church. Now, and James and the leadership are very clear. This is not an issue of Gentiles needing to come under the law. They have rejected that. And it's even repeated here. They repeat this, um, our judgment that they should abstain from what's been sacrificed to idols and from blood, from what has been strangled, from sexual immorality. You may recognize that. That is part of the letter from uh, Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council, where they decided, what are Gentiles supposed to do? Are they now to come under the law? That's a different question. That's been answered, and they want to be very clear. We are not revisiting that. That decision, this is not about Gentiles. This is about Jews. And this is about the Jewish freedom to continue to abide by the law and love Jesus at the same time. So Paul then cooperates. Because Paul is culturally sensitive without compromising the gospel, because he is committed to harmony when the gospel is not at stake, Paul cooperates. He does this. And in fact, this is what Paul means when he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 and 20, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. That's what he means. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not, my, not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. Now, in this case, he's not talking about winning Jews to Jesus. In, in Acts chapter 21 here, it's about creating harmony within the church. But that's his attitude. That's his stance. And there's a lesson for us here. We too should be ready to sacrifice our freedoms in the gospel for the good of the gospel and for harmony in the church and not be too quick to call it legalism. There are times when we need to take our freedom to whatever, drink alcohol, watch a movie, whatever it is, those gray areas where there are matters of conviction within the church and say, that freedom exists for me to have the opportunity to sacrifice it out of love for the conscience and the good of someone else in the body. It's what Paul is exemplifying here. And the strategy is not a bad one. And you know what? For all we know, it may have been successful. Paul's participation in this vow may have alleviated a lot of the misperception about what his teaching. But if you've ever done something you knew was good and right to do only to feel burned in the end, 
then you can probably relate to what happens to Paul here. Because for Paul, taking this step, going into the temple and participating in this vow to help create harmony within the church actually exposes him to the very dangers he has been warned about. But as you see, this all unfolds as part of the plan. So Jesus advances the gospel through Paul's sacrifice, and he also advances it through Paul's arrest. Look at verse 27. And when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. Men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and against the law and against this place. Moreover, even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place, for they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was uh, actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. Now, Luke's focus is not the effect on the church of Paul's participation in this vow, but what happens to Paul. When you hear Jews from Asia, think Ephesus, Colossae, Thyatira. These are cities in Asia Minor where Paul had three years of very fruitful ministry. And these Jews, probably from Asia, are probably from Ephesus. That's where he spent all of that time. And they recognize him. They see him in the temple. And as he participates in this vow, and their accusation is this, Paul has attacked Jewish distinction, the fact that we are called out and different from other people groups. That's what he means by, this is the man who preaches against the people. He has attacked their practice, living under the law. He has attacked their worship, this place, that is the temple. And on top of all of that, Paul has defiled the temple by bringing a Gentile into it. That was against the Mosaic law. Gentiles could not come into the temple. And so in a rage, men of Israel help us, in a rage they lynch him and beat him with the intent to kill him. And the only thing that stops them is the arrival of the Roman troops that are stationed there. Word reaches the tribune in charge and he runs down with the soldiers. But chaos and confusion abound. Not knowing who Paul is, not knowing what he has done, the soldiers arrest him. And you can see the tribune here is trying to press to know who Paul is and why they're beating him. And so he's calling out and saying, what's going on here? 
Why are you guys grabbing him? Who is he? But there is so much yelling and uproar and confusion that the crowd is so frenzied that he, they, they have to literally pick Paul up and carry him out of the violence back to the soldiers' barracks for safety. Once again, Paul is misjudged. He is unjustly accused, and he must endure suffering for the gospel's sake. And we see the fulfillment of all these prophecies and warnings that Paul has received on his way to Jerusalem. This is exactly what is happening. And yet, at the same time, his arrest is one of the most significant events in the entire book of Acts. Because first of all, being arrested actually delivers him. It actually saves his life. Much like the fish swallowing Jonah in the sea as he sinks to the bottom is both a judgment on Jonah, but it's God's salvation. It saves and preserves Jonah's life. The arrest preserves Paul's life. Secondly, now Paul is in Roman custody. And it is being arrested, not being free, but being arrested and in Roman custody that gets Paul to Rome. Paul is never again, by the way, free in the book of Acts from this moment on. He is always imprisoned or in custody of Rome. So Jesus advances the gospel then through Paul's arrest. Thirdly, Jesus advances the gospel through Paul's integrity. Through Paul's integrity. Verse 37. So as the crowd is screaming away with him, they bring him into the barracks. Verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they had heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God and all of you, uh, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. So Paul begins with kind of a history, a biography, where he was born, where he was raised, how he was trained, how he was a part, not only a part, but far more embedded in the very system that they love and are zealous for than any of them ever were. Okay, verse six. But as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, 
why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to, that, uh, up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought the citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. The tribune's suspicions about Paul are almost comical, aren't they? So Paul speaks to him in Greek, says, can I, can I say something to you? Aren't you the Egyptian who stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins into the wilderness? Now, Paul's been called many things. This is probably the first time he's been labeled an Egyptian terrorist, but this is what the man thinks. He's trying to put the pieces together. And Paul's response is, uh, Paul's response is important. I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure. These are credentials, and they gain Paul an opportunity to defend himself. Okay? Now, most of Paul's testimony here is familiar to us, especially those of you Call Crossway home. You've been here for this series in Acts. You remember Acts chapter nine, which Paul is now recounting. Now, there's some new stuff in here, some of what Ananias says to Paul when he gets into Damascus. Some of this is new information. This vision that he has 
when he returns to Jerusalem. This is new. We haven't been told this before. So these are some new things that, that we learn. But Paul is, first of all, making a point of Jesus's lordship. He is the glorified Lord and ruling with divine authority. And I, Paul, am bound to this Jesus, to this Lord. He is the one who intervened into my life, called me to himself, and called me to this task, to this ministry, which is Paul's, really Paul's second point. He is defending his calling and ministry. This is the first of three defense speeches in this last fourth of the book of Acts. And they are the focus of the rest of the book. The other two are in Roman courts, not in the Jewish not in Jerusalem, not in the Jewish population or in a Jewish court, but in the Roman courts. But this first one is here before the Jews. And by the way, more print is given to Paul's defense speeches in this last little book of the book of Acts than all of his missionary speeches, all of his preaching of the gospel in the former part. So Luke, as he puts together the book, sees this as an important, a key part of the entire story. Paul's defense of his ministry, first before the Jews and then before the Romans. Paul insists that none of this was done by his initiative. You notice that? None of this was done by his initiative. None of this was part of Paul's plan. Here's how he emphasizes it, verse five. As he's telling his story and reminding them of who he was and what he did, he says, I received letters from the brothers, what he means is the Jewish leadership, those he called brothers at the time. I received letters, this was authorization. I was serving under Jewish authority to go and to bind, imprison, and kill Christians, those of the way. Verse 10, though, he encounters Jesus in what? You will be told all that is appointed for you to do. You catch that? It's already appointed. My plan for you is already laid out, Paul. And now you're going to be told what's appointed for you. Jesus is now doing the appointing, not the Jewish leadership in Paul's life. Verses 14 and 15, look at those. these, These words are in the mouth of Ananias. God appointed you to know his will, for you will be a witness for him to everyone. This is the next step in the mission reveal. Verse 21, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. In each encounter with Jesus or the prophetic word through Ananias, Paul's calling and his mission are made more clear and more specific. You see that? That's the point of his testimony here. God has called Paul. And maybe at this point in his In his defense, Paul was going to call them to believe and repent and be baptized. It's hard to know because he's interrupted. The mention of Gentiles that I was sent by the God of Moses, the God of Abraham, to go to the Gentiles confirms all their suspicions about Paul's anti-Jewishness. And so they go into a rage again. Now, The Roman tribune doesn't speak Hebrew. 
He doesn't speak Aramaic. So you got to remember, he has given Paul permission to speak. Paul has waved his hand. He has spoken now for several minutes. And the Roman tribute, he has no idea what Paul has just said. All he's heard is gibberish to him. So he still doesn't know. Now all of a sudden, all he sees is the crowd going into a rage again and flinging things and trying to grab Paul again to lynch him. And so he's standing there. He's going, I got to get to the bottom of this. He has no idea what Paul has said. So he has no reference point for the, the return of the riot. But he's determined to get to the bottom of this, even by torture if he has to. And that's why he takes this step. He says, we're going to get to the bottom of this, lay him out, and we're going to find out by the whip who this guy is and why he's disturbing the peace. Of course, it's at this point that Paul leverages his Roman citizenship. Now, I think back to Philippians, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 16. He's in Philippi. And when confronted with this, Paul doesn't say anything, and he actually is beaten and then thrown into prison, and it's not till after. You may remember that. So Paul's strategy is a little different this time. He actually leverages his Roman citizenship before they punish him, before they whip him, right? And so uh, the conver um, this conversation then, this interchange with the tribune is establishing, once again, credentials, not only for Paul, but for his message, for the gospel. And so the the tribune's like, wait a second. You know, the centurion, of course, runs, gets tribute. So the tribune says, wait a second. I paid a large sum for this. It was possible to buy yourself into Roman citizenship. And this tribune apparently has done that. But Paul says, I was born a citizen. It's almost a one-upman. It's almost a congratulations, but I was born a citizen, which means that Paul's father somehow had gained citizenship under Roman rule. And so Paul's a, a born citizen. I am a citizen by birth. But here's what's important. Look back at chapter 21, verse 39. What does Paul say as they're dragging him into the barracks? I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia. Do you see how Paul does this? Isn't it interesting? This defense speech this defense of his integrity and the integrity of his mission and his calling is sandwiched between two conversations with the Roman tribune. And in the first one, he makes it clear, I am a Jew, Tarsus in Cilicia. And in the second one, he makes it crystal clear, I am a Roman. I am a Roman citizen. What do you do with that? There's only Paul qualified to be in this spot. So it's sandwiched between these two revelations of his citizenship. Paul and Luke is establishing the integrity of his mission by these two credentials then. His, uh, Jesus' divine action and calling of the apostle Paul and Paul's unique citizenship status. He is neither a harm to Jews, he belongs in the Jewish world, and he is neither a threat to Rome. He belongs in the Roman world. One of Luke's key words to us then is that this invincible gospel transcends the state. And that fact enables Christians to pursue the kingdom while abiding by the law, unless they come into direct conflict. And in some cases, that does happen. Think about this quote from Daryl Bach, a New Testament scholar. 
Christians have nothing to fear from systems that seek justice. For if a Christian has integrity, then the state has nothing to fear from the believer, and the believer can make the case that nothing that has been done is designed to undercut that state's right to both exist and create a society of law, order, and peace. You wanna know where one of the best examples of this is when Jesus is challenged with the question, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And what does Jesus reply? Render under Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Render unto God what is God's. Don't confuse the two. But they should coexist because the, the powers of this earth are, are passing. One day, Jesus will deal with the governments of this world. That's not our job. That's his job. And he will deal with them all. In fact, he will do away with them all. And there will be a... a theocratic monarchy, okay? So if anybody asks you what's your political position, you tell them I'm a theocratic monarchist, okay? Because Jesus is gonna return and he's gonna set up his kingdom, all right. Okay. We should be able to do this though. But there's wisdom, look at Paul. He knows when to leverage his citizenship and he knows when to set it aside. This is a time to leverage it. So they withdraw, but the tribune is still bound to figure out what's going on. He's got he's to get to the bottom of this, so he takes another step. Jesus advances the gospel through Paul's sacrifice, through Paul's arrest, through Paul's integrity, fourthly, through Paul's wits. He advances the gospel through Paul's wits. Look at chapter 22, beginning of verse 30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews... He unbound him, this is the Roman tribune now, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall, are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead, that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Now, this is really a kind of a pre-trial hearing, okay? And uh, the tribune calls this meeting and it basically says, look, if 
we're going to get to the bottom of this, if you want anything to happen to Paul, you better get your counsel together here, okay? The tribune really can't hold Paul without a charge, but he can't release him without dealing with the disturbance and figuring that out. So Paul begins then, I've lived my life in good conscience. And what Paul is saying when he says that is, I'm a good Jew, which is why the high priest either says something or gives a signal for Paul to be struck. That's a rejection. That's a, that's a way of saying you are blaspheming by that statement, pop, across the mouth. Now, Paul doesn't recognize who the high priest is. There's a lot of debate about why he doesn't know who the high priest is. It may be that he wasn't in his high priestly garb uh, because it's not really a trial or a hearing. Maybe early in the morning, Paul has been out of Jerusalem for several years. Uh, so in any case, he doesn't recognize this, the high priest, and he rebukes him. But Paul maintains respect when he, when he finds out that it's the high priest who has given the order for him to be struck, even if it's unjust. And at this point, Paul identifies the word Luke uses, perceives. He looks and he reads the crowd and he understands, ah, we got Pharisees in here and we've got Sadducees in here. And that he identifies a theological division between these two factions within the Jewish faith. Now, why does he do this? And it explains here what these divisions are. The Sadducees don't believe in these things and the Pharisees do. So Paul, what's he say? He throws a grenade in the middle of the proceedings. He says, I'm a Pharisee, and I am on trial for the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Why does he do this? Well, it is to disrupt the proceedings. And I believe that Paul sees in the fact that the high priest has ordered him to be struck on the mouth that he's not going to get a fair trial. He's not going to get a good hearing here. Okay. And so it's to disrupt the proceedings. I don't see any other way around that. And some, some New Testament scholars, commentators, they read this and they go, Paul wouldn't do that. Like that's, he shouldn't do that. And so that obviously Paul's not doing that. I think that's exactly what Paul's doing. But the reason is not just to cause division. It is to create a theological debate to make it the center of the charges to keep the Jewish leadership from uniting in trumped up charges about sedition against Rome. That's what I believe is going on here. And let me explain why. The Jews cannot kill Paul without Roman permission, without Roman authority. We know that from Jesus's crucifixion. That's why the Jews had to call Pilate out and have that big trial and do all of that. And that's why everything they say to Pilate is, he is undermining Caesar. He is working against Caesar. He is guilty of sedition. That's their entire accusation, which is why Pilate questions, and my kingdom's not of this world. And Pilate goes, there's nothing wrong. Right. He's not guilty of anything, okay? But that's their entire ploy. This is their one tactic to frame him as a threat to Rome, just like they did Jesus. And you may remember from back in Acts chapter 18, in the city of Corinth, the Jews drag Paul before the proconsul and they say what? He is teaching things contrary to the law. And the proconsul Gallio does what? Dismisses them outright. He kicks them out of court and he says, if this were really a problem of Rome, we'd deal with it, but it's not. This is your matters. You're out of here. 
and he removes them from the court and nothing happens to Paul. Why? Because they failed to come around and be able to show that Paul was disturbing Rome, that he was undermining Rome. They had no case. So what I understand Paul to be doing then is not just causing division for the sake of causing division, but he is making a preemptive strike to divide their number, especially when he realizes he's not gonna be heard, to divide their number, to keep Jewish theology at the center of the charge. And by dividing them and getting them to fight over this theological position, they now have no position to say, to trump up any kind of charges against Rome. I mean, against Paul for undermining Rome. And it works. It works. By doing so, Paul ensures that the gospel is not dragged down into a political mire. So he leverages his citizenship on this side, and now he uses his wits and he divides the Sanhedrin to make sure that the theological issue stays. And you're going to see the fruit of this in the next and final scene because of the response of the tribune in helping Paul, right? So Jesus advances the gospel through Paul's sacrifice, his arrest, his integrity, and his wits, and lastly, through Paul's rescue, through Paul's rescue. Look at verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also, provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix. So now we know the tribune's name. This is Claudius Lysias. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, 
ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive, and he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Jesus advances the gospel through Paul's rescue. So this group of Jews then, these 40 men, bind themselves to this vow, they're gonna kill Paul, and they're not gonna eat until they kill him, which makes you wonder what happened. Did they all actually keep the vow and starve to death because they don't get him, right? But they're gonna ambush him, and Paul's nephew, here we get a little picture, Paul has a sister, apparently lives in Jerusalem. Paul's nephew who is, is, would seem to be pretty young because the tribune takes him by the hand. And I can't see the tribune grabbing you know, a 20-year-old by the hand and leading him off and asking him this gentle question. He's very gentle. His nephew comes in, gives the report. The tribune hears it. And in a lot of different ways, the tribune could respond to this. But, but he takes care of Paul. He rescues Paul. He sees what is going on. And this is an unexpected response, isn't it? This is an unexpected source of justice. Something as you're reading, you're going, wow. Paul seems to be getting a lot fairer trial perspective from the Romans than he is the Jews. It points to this, that even the powers of Rome are under Jesus's command. And I believe Luke records all this as a sign that Jesus will use even the Roman government for the furtherance of the gospel. That that's what God is doing. That's what Jesus is doing. Secondly, Luke is also showing a curiosity that there is going to be a curiosity from some, that some in the Gentile world, maybe even many, will be open, touched by the testimony of the gospel, intrigued by the gospel, this tribune is a sign of that. He represents this different mentality. And there's still confusion, right? He still doesn't understand. He doesn't know what Paul, he doesn't, at this point, doesn't understand what Paul's preaching. But I want to ask you something. How does Luke gain the contents of Claudius Lysias' letter? Let me tell you, I'm in the white spaces here, okay? So this is just conjecture. But I believe that this tribune eventually becomes a Christian. I believe he becomes a believer in later years. He doesn't within the story, and I think that's why Luke doesn't say anything about it, but I believe Claudius Lysias probably comes to faith, probably becomes a believer, and that Luke, in doing all of his research and stitching together all of these traditions and, and accounts and eyewitness accounts, eventually speaks with Claudius Lysias. Luke is well-known in the Roman world. He is writing acts for a Roman noble named Theophilus. And so I believe that somehow uh, Claudius Lysias becomes a believer, not converted at this point, outside the scope of the story, but he eventually, uh, Luke interviews him and gets the contents to the letter that he wrote. But most importantly, in the midst of all this intrigue and plotting and counterintelligence, it is Jesus 
who rescues Paul. We look at all of these actions, the kind of the compassion understanding of the tribune. We look at the report of the nephew, his his heads up move here and going and reporting it. But remember chapter 23, verse 11. The Lord has visited Paul and he has said to Paul, take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Who is pulling the strings in all of the intrigue? Jesus is. Jesus is. He's in charge. And we know this because of really what might be the centerpiece of this entire account. Chapter 23, verse 11. Uh, You are also going to Rome. You must testify in Rome. And so what is the conclusion to all of this? It's just one point. Just one point, guys. Trust him. Trust him. Walk with him. Bear the gospel as Paul did. Be faithful to it. Understand that you have been called and wherever God has placed you. Paul was designed, right? God created Paul before his birth. He created Paul, all of his background, all of his family, his citizenships, this unique place of being fully a Jew and fully a Roman citizen, being born in in an illustrious Hellenistic Jewish city, Tarsus, and yet at the same time being born a Roman citizen, being trained as a Pharisee. Paul is uniquely shaped for this ministry. God has uniquely shaped you, every one of us, for, for a ministry of the gospel. And it may not be on the world scene and in the courts before rulers of this world, like Paul is. But God has put you exactly where he would have you to be faithful to your calling. And that is the calling that we as God's people have inherited and are, is chartered for us in the book of Acts. And I've said this many times. But trust him. Jesus is doing no less today. He is no less at work today in your life and what he has called you to do than he was in Paul's. Bear the gospel as Paul did and trust him. He has been with us since the day he left us. How about that? He has been with us since the day he left us. The Holy Spirit is in us and with us just as he was with and in Paul. And... You say, well, I don't see it. I don't get all these pictures. That's because your part in the, in the continuation of the book of Acts has not been written yet. In retrospect, you will see it. We all will. Paul didn't see it yet. Why do you think Jesus had to show up in chapter 23, verse 11, and say something to him? Because <laughs> Paul didn't just want to sit back and go, ah, Jesus has got this. Oh, Paul is looking and going, oh, I thought I was going to Rome and now I'm arrested and you know, now there's a plot against my life and all of these different things. And yet Jesus is guiding everything just as he does for us. Not only for us as individuals, which I've just spoken to, but for us as a church, for Crossway Fellowship. Okay, Jesus is guiding our steps. Let's walk by faith.